Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. Welcome along, Philly. Hello. It's the uh, middle of our holidays. It's very nice to see your face. Mm, I'm a lot more relaxed than I was last time we spoke, where I couldn't count to 100. I'm sure it'll actually show in our voices as well mm. that we're in a much more calm space. Very calm. Yeah, apart from where the hell is my laptop? That's the only thing. Love how you've lost your laptop. Driving me nuts. Well, I personally think it's really healthy that you don't know where it is. I appreciate that. If it wasn't, I feel like I always have something lost in my life. So Uh, I'll find the laptop and then I'll be, where did I put my keys? So I'm always trying to find something. In fact, the um, women at reception know that I'm such a loser of things that they generally they just assume that when something has been handed in, it must be yours. That it's mine. So I'll often walk past and they're like, "Oh, Philly, are these yours?" And I'm like, "Oh, yeah, they are actually. That's that's great. Thank you." So I, I would go so far as to perhaps call them enablers. Yeah, there we go. That's it. <laughs> Where are they now? That's the question. Yeah, yeah, I reckon. But uh, how have your holidays been? Oh, good. I uh, spent a bit of the first part doing a short tour of the south of the North Island, doing some of our NZATE language workshops and had such a wonderful time. Mm, Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, yeah. Of all the things I observed doing during that, I think the one that that sticks with me is how many brilliant young teachers there are in the country and the way that they are all thinking in really interesting and creative ways about the job and are quite enthusiastic about it. I feel like things are in good hands. It goes a bit against the narrative you hear, actually. And so that was Mm. wonderful. That was probably the most wonderful part, just getting a, a chance to see people in their local environments and talking about the teaching of language, which was great fun. There's probably about 10 of those workshops that are locked in at the moment. So um, Yeah, haven't you done well? Yeah, yeah. We need to give you credit for this. You, oh, you're, thanks. You're in charge of rolling it all out, and I well, do really like them. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a really awesome process. And, I mean, to sit in that hui that we had last week, and I think there were about six of us in that in that meeting. It was like I'm, I, feel, I felt so humbled to be sitting with such incredible educators. It's been a cool experience. I'm looking forward to running a couple of workshops up here in Tāmaki Makoto and then um, Te Tai Taukaro and um, or Tokiro rather and where else in the Waikato as well so we spoke to Airana Nariwa this time and he was such an interesting man you already knew him I didn't know you already knew him yes I had the privilege of working with him when he was doing his master's so I was one of the directors of the um the master of teaching and education leadership program that he was doing as a part of the um teach first NZ Akumata Tupu. He he was doing that. I think he was studying Te Reo Māori and may have had some crossover into the English space, which is where I spent most of my time. But yeah, it was so awesome to reconnect with him. Gosh, what a humble, inspiring young man. We were just kind of frothing after chatting with him, eh? He's, yeah, we absolutely were. Their school is so lucky to have him. They are so lucky to have him. I think we were both frothing as HODs, actually. Mm-hmm. It's a, another example of that whole thing about being inspired by younger teachers and just realising yeah. that there's a real need for what they do, not just our experience and background. We've got that to offer, and I know there's a need for that, but also just that, dare I say it, relevance that a young person brings to the whole thing. Although I'd like to point out at this point, Chris, that you are a lot older than me. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Um, I keep talking about it as if we're the same age. We're we're not the same. I am youthful and Yes. And I'm just embracing my 50s. I'm trying to embrace them. I'm, I'm, I'm loving being older. For the first time in my life, I think people sometimes take me as seriously as I take myself, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. I'm, in my, I'm, I'm 38, and I've enjoyed finally, and it's only really happened in the last couple of years or so, actually feeling like I know how to do my job. Mm. The, the rest of the adult world, I'm still you know, coming to terms with. I'm still waiting for my membership in the post. And I don't know if I quite have the maturity to to be 
a proper grown-up. I think that's why I keep defaulting back to working with teenagers because it's just where I feel my natural self. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, and they still make fart jokes and I'm very comfortable with that. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Comfortable level discourse for me too. I, uh, uh, yeah, and I think, again, Arana was a good example of a younger person showing their wisdom but also showing mm. their youth and uh, yeah. uh, optimism, which we just need. It's It was wonderful. Yeah. But also he, he came to my attention because of some quite incendiary articles that he's had published in places like the spin-off. And, um, oh, that's a good adjective. What's that one again, Chris? Oh, incendiary, incendiary. sort of kind of like, yeah, a, like, like, like a missile setting up an explosion. Mm. But he's, he's got some fairly hard-hitting points to make in those articles, and uh, we'll link to them in the podcast because they're definitely worth a read and also worth offering to students as pieces of non-fiction writing. But he's also written some fiction, which he's read for us. So it's a great conversation. That night, though, Philly, it was a couple of weeks ago, and you had parent interviews, and then we interviewed after that. I don't, and I don't know yeah. how you did it, to be honest. I don't know if I did. So I can remember at the end of that conversation being like, I don't think I've made much sense. Or there were just really, really long pauses in between my words. So thank you, Mr. Editor. I imagine you've probably spent a bit of time uh, speeding that up. I've been using this uh, practice of taking pauses out anyway, which kind of speeds things up in the podcast. But I noticed that even about myself, like there seemed to be a long delay before I responded to everything that I'd honest said <laughs> because I was clearly concentrating hard. <laughs> All right, well, let's crack into it then, eh? Great. Awesome. See you next next fortnight. So well, welcome, Ayrana. I really am so grateful you've come and spoken to us. Right now, it's a dialogue because Philly's got a parent interview, which I think is going over time. But we decided to get started anyway, because essentially, I can't help myself. I want to start asking questions. Yeah, kia ora la, Mato Chris, e te Appreciate the, the opportunity to speak with you and uh, very grateful to sit within the Existable Credits Pahu for the podcast. Well, thank you. The... Um, reason that we wanted to talk to you have ended up being manifold because while my first point of contact was just reading some of your published writing as I started to learn more about you I also discovered you're an educator you're a teacher yourself and also that you've got some really highly developed ideas about education and now I just want to know about it all so might we start by asking some some questions about your pathway to the point that you are in your personal and professional life now? How did you get here? I think speaking primarily of education, that you know, for a lot of my wano, uh, school was not the most positive place. Uh, to quote my mother, I was almost expelled from every school I went to, from primary all the way through to high school. A university is probably the place where I, I first found some success and I only ended up there due to sort of one teacher pushing and mum being stringently against any idea of a gap year. But as we move towards the tertiary space, I come to understand my own place within education and my own passion for learning when it existed outside of the, educa- the institutions of education I existed within. But ultimately the way I, I wound up in teaching is through Akumatatupi Teach First New Zealand, which is a, a really amazing organisation. We do a lot of work for recruiting some really powerful people, and I count all of my peers among them, into the classroom space, particularly into lower decile classrooms. What made you decide after having had perhaps what people might call a turbulent time in education that you'd want to go into education? What motivated you to do that? It was always a conspiracy of circumstances. Like I've heard from a number of teachers I've worked from, the moment we left school, we swore we were never going back. Uh, Ultimately, I wanted to be what I didn't have to fill that space. A lot of uh, Māori I speak to, they they walk through life in a very value-based way. And the idea is see a need, fill a need. If there's ever any sort of gap within our structures, that it's our responsibility as Māori to fill those gaps or those future generations coming through. Do you feel that the Teach First approach was a good one for you in terms of getting in? How did it work for you? Yeah, definitely. I think I was always going to form my own ideas about education in the institutions of education within the classroom. One can only get so far reading through the theory. There has to be some 
implementation of that theory and some serious reflection of how that applies to one's own life. And then so much of education is contextual as well. Who are the learners you have in front of you? Who are you? What is the community you are placed within, the history of that community? All of those subjects of history that sit within that as well. And ultimately, those were placed at the center of Akumatatepe's vision and philosophy and all of the leaders within that space too, Dr. Michelle Johansson being foremost among them, a very, very powerful wahine who was very lucky to have many long conversations with. The tension there is if you spend a lot of your formative time within the context of a school, there's a possibility that you're also subject to some of the bad habits of the school. How do you maintain a kind of intellectual distance from the environment you're in when you're learning to be a teacher where the people around you are by nature very influential over you? Yeah, definitely. And one of the ways we can go about making those compensations is constantly referring to the literature, whether that's sort of academic literature or the empirical literature or the philosophy of education, which I place a great importance on. If, if one approaches it with the right mindset, the right attitude, the right philosophies, they can be weaponized and used to one's advantage. Awesome. Tell us about the philosophies you've weaponized. <laughs> and with our school, a lot of our, it's become a bit of a token within education, the student-centered learning, but what that actually means in practice, that cooperation and collaboration to place relationships at the center of the classroom, to be getting an idea of who your learners are, the places they come from, asking really simple questions but not necessarily direct questions like where do, where do they exist within sort of the spaces that surround the school the many communities they sit within even asking what is the primary language at home what cultural spaces do they sit within all of those things that inform the their learner and their place coming to you as long as one is cooperating with the community and collaborating with your learners as best as possible I think that's ultimately the philosophy that I've most weaponized within my spaces. How does that look? Taking some time away from that curriculum learning and actually creating space for conversations. It's having those really long and often they can be a little bit personal conversations as well and, and personal in sometimes some uncomfortable ways and, and learners will ask you questions that maybe you didn't come into the classroom prepared to answer and, and maybe sometimes you'll, you'll do the same in return and ultimately getting a sense of, who each other are and, and coming outside of the classroom as well, understanding that the classroom it holds a particular space within our learners' minds. Sometimes it's a really beautiful space and sometimes it's a not so beautiful space and getting outside the classroom and, and, and seeing how their different attributes and values manifest themselves in different settings. For a lot of my taweta, we like to get out there and play sport and, and see sort of what that looks like in the particular setting, like what sports they even like to play, what are their interests, their passions and aspirations. This collaborative process is, is really implicit, but ultimately it's embedded or it sits almost like at the foundation beneath the classroom, which is your voice is valued as a learner here. You are welcome at any point to ask me why we are doing this. And I am responsible at every in every single instance to give you a meaningful answer and if I cannot give you a meaningful answer then we need to move on and sometimes I need some time to reflect and we can circle back this is music to my ears I spent a lot of time proselytizing really on this notion of shifting the locus of control away from the teacher who previously may have stood at the front of the classroom and the mechanisms that you can use to do that are many and I definitely agree that relationship is one. I also think as is coming through and what you're talking about, this notion of choice, uh, allowing students to feel or actually have meaningful choices in their learning so that they've got purchase on what's happening. Hello, Philly. So far, Iran has talked about kind of what got him into teaching and a bit about teaching philosophy. I decided to start with teaching, but maybe we could pivot straight into some of your writing and then merge the conversations because everything that you've just said actually explains why you write in a lot of ways. There's a lot being expressed there. And so should we just go there? Yeah. Why don't we start with the fiction piece? Yes. And then we'll just play it out from there. I don't know if Philly's seen this. This will be wonderful. She'll just experience it now. I'm ready to experience. See you there. So we'll dive straight in. See that, Kara? A lime green beetle puttered into the distance, barely making the speed limit. Lady in the front winked at me, almost crossed the centre line. She also lost in my eyes. Bro, she looks 70. Maui shrugged her shoulders. 
I swear across those generational lines. What can I say? The brothers rested atop a bridge, still dressed in their school uniform, shirts hanging over their shorts and socks pulled up to their knees, watching the cars drift by, dreaming up love stories, whatever you call the not-so-quiet fantasies of 16-year-old boys. The night would soon grow late and I'd stay there, trading fictions, blasting homemade beats on a Bluetooth speaker, a kind of karanga for this rural place, the WAPS. See that one? A painted renal sail in the town, the waka decorated with all sorts of surfer imagery, palm trees and sunrises and lava lamps. The one with all the girls. Not girls, bro. Woman. Shameful winked at his brother. Should have seen the hungry eyes they were giving me, looking me up and down, licking their lips. It's like I was a steak or something. Grade A meat, you reckon? Better than grade A. Mudden bird. Bro, you smell like mudden bird. They cracked up laughing, remembering the last time one of their neighbours cooked that devil fowl, stinking the whole block for a month. And anyway, they were probably looking at me. I was stretching, you know, showing my abs. More like showing your undies. The banner went on endlessly, their little world alight with humour, their voices most passionate after a joke, their eyes most alive after a laugh. There were a few joys in this rural kingdom were soul warming in the company of a like mind, a brother from another mother. God knows how the boys had struggled everywhere else. In the classroom, a fart in the test, no matter how impressive means an automatic F. If you wait until all the windows are closed, you even get a bonus letter home detailing the event in hilarious detail. Three times Maui pressed his buttocks into the chair, amplifying both the audible and olfactory aspect of his flatulence. In church, the Dinkin straight up fainted when Faithful screamed at Burns at his baptism. Even on the sports field, turns out undies on the outside was not the official away kit. The brothers were built for the stage for sold-out audiences to bring joy and levity to a world so stifled and confused. Knew well the difficulties of life, its harsh absurdity, and had come to know the modi of a little glee. Just how far Joe could carry a car in an empty tank. Two parents in a row. A couple of boys were told they're no good. A waste of space. See him now? That young guy? Well, I look like Billy T. James had a child with a rake. Same moustache and everything. Just skinny. Pretty sure that guy was a teacher back in the day. Remember seeing him and wanting the exact same mo. Should have grown it. I tried. Came out red. They exploded with laughter, almost losing their balance, almost falling into the river beneath them. No way. You're a ginger. Yeah, honest, was red as. They laugh again. Looked like an off-brand J-Geek. Maui, seeing his opportunity, broke out some bad dance moves, moonwalking the length of the one lane, spoofing the J-Geek classic as he went. I'm a Māori dancing cross a bridge. Got no money for my sandwiches. Faithful, getting caught up in it all, jumped in with a harmony, eyes closing into his fist. Do I ever, ever get annoyed? A beat-up youth slammed on its brakes, the driver smashing his hand on his horn, calling the brothers from their daydream. The St. Spark Arena boys, get off the bloody road. Out bad, sir, the boys replied, unappreciated again, darting quickly out of his way, posting themselves back up on the barrier of the bridge, waiting for the youth to disappear. Never mind him, uh, full of stress, probably just praying their broken-down thing gets him home, you know? Yeah, nah, I get it. Anyway, we won't be able to stop from laughing when we really are playing the spark. When the girls really are checking out your undies. Faithful grins. No girls, bro. Woman. He winked at his brother. The question I ask myself is how does someone who can write that not thrive when they're at school? And why are they not celebrated? <laughs> does that make sense? Like that piece of writing has such vivid voice and it communicates and a relationship and, a, and, an, and an experience of life which is so meaningful and authentic. And that must have been coming out of you even when you were a teenager, surely. Probably not through any written lens. Uh, the, the school experience was such that I often avoided a pen and a book and anything like that. Didn't start reading until I was really in my early, maybe mid-20s, like 23, 24s, I think, when I maybe started picking up a few books. So three years ago. Yeah, maybe five, three to five years ago. Give it a range. Yeah. <laughs> so why was this not happening at school? Primary school, I, I spent a lot of my time outside of the classroom and there's not a whole lot you do outside of the classroom, by which I mean I'd get sent out of class and you end up chilling out there on your in your own time, in your own space. And that's not necessarily the most productive space. I certainly wasn't keen on uh, expressing myself in such a way that might be respected or, or given any sort of uh, praise within the classroom space. Why is that? Was that reluctance, the push factors from the school or were you reluctant 
to engage? Um, I think given my relationship with the teachers, it was a pretty antagonistic relationship. And I think I bought into that relationship as well. I think I come to understand myself or understood myself within the classroom environment as being being that being my role to sort of butt heads with the teacher. As I reflect on it, maybe a, a little bit younger than myself, you'd asked me maybe six months ago, I was trying to take as much responsibility for everything as possible, given that was the pathway through which I thought I would be able to come to terms with my own education. If, if I was able to understand my position within it and my role within it, then I was able to make some changes. If it existed outside of myself, then I had no influence on any of that. I remember one of the uh, young girls in primary school asked me one time, like, why don't you just like do what you're told? And I said, you don't get it. Me and, me and the teacher, we're in a battle right now. And the first one to concede loses. And I was saying this at, I was maybe nine years old. So I'd already at that point, I'd really developed a sense of identity within the classroom. It wasn't conducive to me learning. You've constructed for yourself a pedagogy, which is designed to confound that in other students, haven't you? Yeah, definitely. You asked the question earlier around sort of what does the collaboration and stuff look like within the classroom? And, and as I addressed earlier, it's a pretty difficult question to address, but you brought up the sort of question or the point in and around like even the architecture of the classroom. So within the classroom space, we have no teacher's desk. I don't have a whiteboard in there that's being used at all, no whiteboard markers in there. We have our slides and stuff that unview the lesson, but like that's a really collaborative board that we all exist and use around. I spend most of my time, like Fire Philly, you mentioned uh, in a previous podcast, down the back of the room, and you know that's where a lot of our learners migrate to. We haven't had the most positive schooling experience, and so that's where I spend most of my classroom in and around. So what would you do with you? Probably just a conversation needed to be had and like a real conversation. I was never going to be told as a, a young person what I needed to do. That just was never going to work. And it, was, it must have been a really difficult experience for my teachers and I have a lot of uh, empathy for them, uh, regardless of maybe some of the mistakes that were made along the way. And But these are learners who were continue talking about me five years later when my uh, younger brother entered the schooling space. So my name was still on their lips then so it must be quite a traumatic experience for them but ultimately I, I just needed a teacher I think to have a conversation with me and with learners like myself and learners who've had a much longer much tougher uh, history within the institution of education often if you can sit down to them and get them to talk it's not even getting them to talk they they just want to if you sit down with them they will just start speaking through their whole history and it will come out like a podcast in and of itself and like you by the end of it you're almost trying to like cut the conversation short so you can sort of move towards some kind of progress or some kind of next steps but most young people will absolutely explode at the opportunity to be listened to that was my question earlier like you're talking about yourself as a um nine-year-old you know spending some spending time outside the classroom and having galvanized this identity and kind of um, very aptly managing the perception that teachers in particular had of you. Can you remember at that age a teacher person showing that care and love for you? Mum speaks of a year one teacher Mm. who uh, I don't quite recall. She speaks of her having had a really good relationship with me and School didn't start off on the positive note with me at all. Mum used to have to drag me to the front gate in my pyjamas with a change of clothes and oh. she would send me into <laughs> send me into class that way. And ultimately I was going to get changed when, when it was time for me to get changed. But yeah, so from uh, five, six years old, I was, I was having a bit of rough go at it. But by about intermediate, it's the first time I can remember building a solid relationship with a teacher. And my classroom experience within that space was dramatically different. It, I was sort of like existed within that goody two shoes role, like the role had almost switched. And so we used to have this thing where um, whoever performed, uh, produced the most excellent work, however they described it, got to have this half an hour free break on a Friday. And for like 10 weeks, it was me just over and over and over and over again. I think it's probably fair to say that. You're a favourite. Well, it was definitely it was definitely a relational uh, a relational learner. Anyway, I was going to thrive, and whoever was able to build a relationship with me, and she was probably the first one who managed to crack that code. Mm. Her name was Miss Amador, Trish Amador, and I had her for about six months before she uh, disappeared to disappeared here. Yeah. 
<laughs> up to the next row here, next region. Yeah. It's quite interesting how in education we disappear from each other's lives quite often. What role does, I mean, you, you talk about having had a, um, perhaps like a volatile schooling experience as a, as a young boy. What role does that play in your writing now? How important is that? Writing is probably one of the most intuitive things I do. A lot of the time I, I spend some, it's been seriously reflecting on my life and the many different aspects of my life. Writing is one of the few ways I think I sort of allow myself or try to get out of my own way a little bit. Uh, I, What I find when I read my own writing, and so it's less a conscious thing than it is a, a pattern I've identified as I'm often trying to uh, give a voice to those who I wouldn't say voices, but who are disengaging from these systems. And so their voices are no longer present there. So one of the interesting things about teachers is that there's a selection bias, right? So most teachers ended up having a positive schooling history, which is why they signed up for more of it. They're going to jump straight back in the classroom. I love that space. It did so much more for me. I want to pass that on to the next generation. And there's there's few of us, although not a a very small minority who have had a negative schooling history come in with the exact opposite of, of intentions. Oh, this wasn't very positive for me. It's time for me to flick some switches here and there, try and make some change. So I guess what I find within the writing to answer the question that it, as best as I can is that I'm, I'm often trying to make the best arguments or try and represent these particular pools of experience and knowledge and ways of living that, aren't often present in that particular story that those are those boys who are like myself had spent more time outside the classroom probably in the classroom and the the value and power of their humor is often uh, treated with a real it's not treated with its proper worth and respect within the classroom space and that's something i speak explicitly to my learners about to go on just a little bit more if you'll allow me i remember i we had finished this particular assessment with my year 11s one time and they hadn't done as well as we thought they might do in terms of their grade output. And so rather than moving on to the, the next lesson, I threw my lesson plan out the window and we spent the whole lesson unpacking all that education and our credit system and NCA doesn't recognize. And I talked about one of our learners being like a son in every room he walked into that he was just a light of our life and that often when he walks into a classroom space that the impulse of the teacher and the institution is to dull him as much as possible so that he can fit within these four walls. And there was a, another learner who is so compassionate and pathetic that she put her learning aside in order to uh, co-ruminate with her peers to walk them through their own anxieties and their own stresses. And that was all having a negative impact on the education or at least the experience of education. And to recognize that, in, in such a way where teachers might see that, I think is at least unconsciously underpinning my writing. It sits in there somewhere. Another thing that's happening in your writing, from my point of view, <laughs> Philly will find this so predictable, but you've managed to capture a whole lot of New Zealand colloquial language that's really hard to get right. It's hard to fake, if that makes sense. And the interesting thing is that what you've done in writing in the way you have is you've you've found a way to elevate it you, and that's actually golden for say someone like me who's wanting to talk about the way we speak as being an expression mm -hmm. of our identities and our culture and our place in the world but looking at it almost at a word level and that piece of writing gives me an amazing resource that I can mine for all of that kind of observation it's wonderful it's easy to deconstruct but how hard is that to construct if you listen to people speak, they're often sort of the semantics of what they're saying is really, really beautiful, that the syntax is absolutely missing, but the meaning of what's being said is, is really beautiful. Hmm. I I considered reading a different piece that is uh, polluted with swear words, but I, I listened to Fly Philly in the last podcast say that a couple of his swears were uh, cut out, so I thought I'll I'll leave that for another day. As a guest in our podcast, you're, you are allowed to say whatever you want to say. We won't be editing any of that. But I wonder also, you're right, that sometimes the meaning that sits behind it is 
really powerful no matter what the structure. But I'd go further because I have a really strong view that the way that we modify structure, especially in New Zealand speech, and speech that's influenced by te reo Māori and also just different con- concepts of being alive in New Zealand, the things that matter to us and the cultural references that are made, they're all really sophisticated, including the lapses, because the lapses are happening for a reason too. There's something communicated in mm-hmm. the deviation from the norm as much as there is the adherence to it. And so I sort of feel like I'm actually going to ask now, can we have your permission to make the text available along with this podcast so that people might use it in their classrooms? Yeah, definitely. Go hard. Awesome. What's it like once you've written something and it's been published and it's out there? And I know that people are really picking up on some of your writing. Uh, I'm seeing it talked about online. I'm seeing the messages that sit behind it become part of people's conversations. But what's it like for you, uh, a young man working hard in education yourself, to kind of carry that, I would say, almost political position that you're starting to assert? It's not entirely intentional. There's probably some fine combing that goes through my work where I decide, you know, that one's for the public and maybe this one here's for me. But ultimately when I put a work out there, I'm I'm done with it. That I've done all I wanted to do to it. Maybe I'm tired of it. Maybe I'm bored of it. Maybe I've said exactly what I mean to say, or at least as best as I can within my current kitty of of tools. And I just and it goes out there and, and sometimes it goes out there to a number of eyes and sometimes it goes out there to no eyes but it goes out there nonetheless do your students or your colleagues read the english teachers read and so i hear a lot from my english teachers who have engaged with the work but i would say 90 percent of my learners don't know i write are you being humble there or does it feel awkward to be like hey guys we're gonna we're gonna study something today oh oh look I wrote it. The, the classroom's not about me. It's not about my own histories and my own knowledge and, and anything like that. The only time that has a place within the classroom is when I think it might be useful to a particular learner. So sometimes some of my learners have had a negative experience within the classroom and the way I'd lead a conversation there in response is, I had the exact same experience or actually, let me one-up you. I had it a little bit worse than you. And we play a little game there. I mean, often that vulnerability elicits more vulnerability and we play that game of tennis where it's like oh well i had this and we had this and now all of a sudden based on you know this one negative experience this learner's had we've built a really meaningful experience and a lot of the times those interactions last across a a really long amount of time they become in jokes and references and they almost revel in the fact they have this this hook and this at least this one experience that some of the other learners don't have but like I said at the beginning, I try to decenter myself as much in the classroom as possible. What I do bring in the classroom and I do it unapologetically is my sense of humor. That's probably the, the part of myself that I couldn't leave outside the door if I tried. Hey, can I ask you, I'm sort of formulating the question in my head. Um, so apologies if I trip over myself. Oh, this bit. is going to be fun for editing. <laughs> no, I can, I can do it. All right. I'm interested in increasingly those of us who are learners of te reo Māori and at the really beginning stage of that journey, um, increasingly we're using more kupu Māori and just sort of weaving it into our vernacular to make sense of the complexity of the world around us because I think my very limited knowledge, te reo Māori does a lot better job of explaining some of those beautiful, abstract, complex things in our world. What role does te reo Māori play in your writing? Is it something that you do intentionally to represent an idea that doesn't exist in te reo Pākehā? Is it something that you're wanting to do to um, to support the regeneration of te reo Māori? Like what, what is happening for you um, as a writer in the non-fiction pieces, it's probably more intentional than in the fiction pieces that mm. I believe that till Māori, the, the kupu within Māori, let alone some of the bigger philosophies, speak to some parts that aren't as easily expressed within te reo Pākehā. Mm. Within the literature, they use the term of art, the sepa war theory or hypothesis, which is essentially there are some ideas that are contained within the language and 
can't as easily or can't at all be accessed outside of this particular language. Mm. Uh, karakia might be a perfect example. Uh, sometimes you'll see some backlash in and around introducing religious concepts into the classroom, but when karakia is used, at least in its um, Māori tuturu sense, which is in the tafeto thinking about how tafeto back in the day, that often it was here to set a tone, and so the translation prayer doesn't quite get there. Yeah, and I, I picked up on like using the word karanga in the story that you just read out, and that's obviously very specific to um, something that exists within te ao Māori that doesn't e- exist within te ao Pākehā. and also that that idea of Modi, you know, and and how powerful that is. And I don't know, I couldn't imagine what the English translation of that would be beyond life force. The way we describe it, and we being within my wano, is we describe every kupu Māori has its own lived experience. And so you can try to translate these things, but you're going to miss them. You might get close to them, and there's certainly more correct ways to describe them, but you're very rarely, with concepts as complex as Modi, going to hit it on its head. And even using other kupu Māori might not get you there without that lived experience, without understanding it within its many contexts. Mm. How are you wanting those teachers who who are real learners and for whom, you know, looking, um, reading these stories and engaging with te reo Māori that might be outside of their vocabulary, what experience would you like those teachers to have with that language? What what would you like to happen for them as they engage with that? The way my auntie describes it, she describes uh, Tiwi Māori as a parliament in and of itself. And so it's important to recognise that when I speak on anything, Kopapa Māori or Tao Māori, that I speak from this very narrow pool of experience that everybody draws from. They draw from in, from different parts of this particular awa, from this particular river. Um, and that thing is flowing and it's changing. And so that metaphor is probably more correct than I intended it to be. But I, I don't know that I have a whole lot of hope and want in that particular space. That I think if a teacher is compelled to use that language, then they should definitely use that language. And I think that's something that one should expect to um, interact with the learners in that particular sense. So we don't use any of these words cheaply. And I mean, I'm speaking to two English teachers, so probably we don't use any words cheaply, that there's some like meaning behind this and they're not simply used as synonyms. You've written some nonfiction as well. Could we listen to that too? Yeah, let's do that. This piece was published on E Tangata. The last piece was published in uh, Landfall and they're both reasonably recent. They come out in the last, it's probably fair to say, three to four months, although my own temporal sense is pretty weak we'll dive straight into it Uh, in the first hour on the first day of high school i was kicked out of class it's a fact i'm almost proud of back then they hit you with a yellow slip and you took that yellow slip to the office and the office sent you to a senior class where you wrote out an apology to your original teacher a process i'd become very familiar with on this particular day i didn't make it past the front door i had no clue where the office was high school might as well have been amazed Instead, I sat outside sunbathing until the kayak or Māori in the room next door came out to see what was up. You've been playing up, boy? Nah, not even. So you're here for nothing? Ms. asked my name and I answered her. Straight up. As it turned out, Aidana to the Pākehā sounds very close to I don't know and Miss T, the first day being the first day, came into the class with a point to prove, ready to crack the whip the moment any student stepped out of line. She must have thought I was being funny, trying to get a laugh and figured her best bet to maintain control of the ravenous lot in front of her, being an extinction class, more nerdy than nightmarish, was to make an example of me. The whole thing was never really resolved. After an explanation where I was asked to repeat my name until it lost all meaning to me, Miss T sent me back into the mix. It was all followed by an apology. I could have brushed it off. It certainly wasn't the first time an adult had made a mistake. But no apology ever came my way. Instead, Miss T doubled down watching me from that point on until I misstepped and then pouncing and so if I ever allowed myself to believe high school was going to be different from every school prior that illusion had been quickly crushed in primary school I had the hallway named after me that might as well have been my classroom because I spent so much time out there during winter it was the worst the corridor cold and my go-to outfit bare feet a Yu-Gi-Oh t-shirt and the fastest pair of shorts that weren't in the wash Intermediate wasn't that much better with my first teacher, who I loved leaving and the replacement conspiring to have me expelled until the principal intervened. 
had taught me previously and knew I was more rat bag than rotten egg. And the cultural clashes at high school continued on the first day with the next conflict occurring between me and my classmates, a crew of know-it-alls asserting out of some secret knowledge that our extension class had a quota, no less than 20% had to be Māori. They suggested that we didn't belong with them, didn't deserve to be there, suggested we were different, lesser. Regrettably, my first reaction wasn't to bark back, but to look around, to treat the all with caution, trusting that what they had said came not from a desire to denigrate, but from a more sympathetic impulse. I'd never met these people and didn't understand how they or this institution of education functioned. I scanned the room and couldn't see what they assured me they saw. Every Māori among us I identified immediately as some kind of brainiac, with an English, maths or art, sport and mataranga Māori obviously absent. Each had a distinct strength, a discrete pool of knowledge only they had access to. From then on, I saw straight through this type. The impulse was the opposite of sympathetic. It was an attempt to claim cleverness exclusively as a white trait. I wouldn't say the school was racist as such. There were Māori staffed and makeshift marae on site, Māori students excelling in pockets. It was, however, uncomfortably tolerant of racist, racist rhetoric. The school was a microcosm of the area. The town is infamous, after all, for a Christmas parade where a bunch of apparently well-meaning senior folk painted their faces black and played Michael Jackson in a loudspeaker. I say apparently because the local theatre remembers the blackface plays of their day in a photo proudly displayed in the woman's bathroom. A terrible history the media missed in their coverage of this faux pas. It wasn't the first time the sound had crossed such a cultural line. And here's the time the girl had become one of the pre- head prefects directed at me, the plainest expression of racism I'd ever heard aloud. The only reason you're any good is because you're part white. We're debating the New Zealand wars and I made a point too close to making sense and she opted for the nuclear option. I remember pausing, allowing the room to breathe the moment in. I expect a gas or who makes a jump in and shut her down, or at the very least a comment from the teacher. Silence was the only reply. She might as well have quoted God and Nation, so I moved with this class of 30 teenagers and a 30-year adult. Even in the moment, I didn't blame my peers or the head prefect herself. I recall telling them as much. Over time, I'd listened to them talk and had questioned them and come to know that none of these were their own beliefs. They were too superficial, tissue thin. They'd heard their mum and dad say this stuff and repeated it. They'd inherited their parents' bigotry like I had inherited the ginger locks of my grandmother. Knew that I'd grow these beliefs as soon as outgrow their parents, as soon as they settled into their adolescence and came to criticise their forebearers, good, bad and racist, as only a teen can. The teacher was a different story. He'd lived long enough to know better. Beyond that, he was in a position of great power. Great power over me, anyway. Ignorance in such a role was inexcusable. Things got more complicated when he later labelled me a mouldy extremist. And why did he grant me such a title? Was it for calling stolen land, stolen land, or alleging my peers were prejudiced? Nah, I'd claim the treaty was the founding document of our country, more a fact than a manifesto. Thereafter, I understood why I never challenged the head prefect's earlier outburst. He shared a similar opinion. But so it went, my high school experience, a buffet of first world bigotry and all its pernicious variety. In truth, I was never overwhelmed by it. I was never even surprised. Thought others might be when it was spoken aloud, so many called New Zealand post-racial, but I certainly wasn't. Perhaps the stoicism was because the bigotry was only a trickle in my life, or it was an ocean in others. Reflecting on it all now, I wonder if the school really was racist. Who could say for sure? May it be safer to say only what the Education Review Office said regarding Māori education there, that it was in urgent need of improvement. You're so good. You're such a good writer. Wow. It's it's incredibly powerful, breathtaking. I immediately want to put it in front of all of my colleagues. Even though it's a non-fiction piece, there is such a narrative quality to it and you, you kind of play a character in, in that narrative. Well, it's actually you, isn't it? This is autobiographical. And one of the things that mm. I'd say from personal experience is that there's a lot of courage in that. A lot of courage that people who don't do it don't understand, but it's one of the most powerful ways of affecting people's opinion because it's testimony. It's not just opinion. And that's what I read that as. And that's what the power is in it for me. I kind of just want to um, thank you for it. It's it's an interesting piece because I, I never intended to write it. I had put a whole plan together for a short story I, I wanted to write and I couldn't get past the first paragraph. And so I threw it out and I started with the line intending it to be fiction, but having found its place first in my real life. On the first day of high school, I was kicked out of class. And then within the, the next few hours, the whole thing had been written. And then from there, it was a matter of 
um, sanitizing it a little bit so as to protect as, as best as I, I thought I was responsible for the identities of, of some of the people within it. So, you know, Miss T wasn't really a Miss T. That was, she was a Miss someone else. And the, and um, the head prefect sat in a higher position than head, head prefect and that kind of thing. So some of the, as autobiographical as I could write without upsetting the particular people within the story. Mm. And narrative as it can be without it becoming fiction. The naming of the teacher brings to mind the fact that I think it's totally acceptable that I live in fear of being that teacher. Like I think we as teachers have this incredibly fragile group of people in front of us at times and that our responsibility to upholding their mana in a variety of different ways is extremely high and difficult to do. I was speaking to a parent this morning actually on the phone and I said yeah, one of the things that I try to remember as much as possible and I was a 27 year old giving a, a dad some advice and around uh, his young person so I was definitely out of line but I felt I had to say it, and so I said it is that we're dealing with children here this was a year nine learner they were 12 years old that is as, as as young as they get within a high school setting, that we expect some of these mistakes to happen, some of this behavior to pop up every now and again. They're still playing, they're still experimenting, they're still figuring this whole high school thing out and themselves out and this life out. It just is what it is. We play with it and I'm not going to take that seriously as the as their dean and maybe probably cool not to take it so seriously at home as long as we're all on the same page and you know, we're batting for the best inning we can for this particular learner, we're good. Totally agree. I um, had a far less eloquent conversation earlier this evening when I was saying to a student and his mother, he's a real delightful, darling goofball who drives me nuts, but I wouldn't have him any other way. You know mm. how some teenage boys are like puppies? Like they're just so adorable, but they've got big stupid feet and piss on the carpet. And um, <laughs> I made the mistake of saying to him in the learning dialogue, like, you're like a puppy. And he was like, what? And I was like, oh, no, I am regretting this metaphor, but I'll unpack it in class uh, later. And his mum's like, sorry, what is the puppy? And I'm like, you're you're like, you're a puppy because you've got big paws. And he's like, what big? And I'm like, oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Can we just rewind this? Just just forget it. You're a dog, slobbery. (laughs) And I'm going to pat you on the head. Uh, 15 years from now, he's going to write something and it's going to be published. (laughs) It's going to quote you. (laughs) I am the dog. Be the dog with the paws. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, totally. One of my peers in the staff room has said essentially the same thing, that I I wish I never have a learner like you in my classes. I, I hope none of my mistakes in the classroom, we all make mistakes, and I was probably... Uh, less compassionate in that piece than I would be in other places recalling it like I, I do in, when I recall those sorts of stories in real life and in front of the whoever I happen to be speaking to. Most often it's the learners and it's uh, the practice I've always had. But to speak to your point too, by Philly, I, I really like the term Russell conjugate, which is the way our cinnamon, synonyms are emotionally loaded. Mm. So one of the ways our learners get described a lot is as stubborn or obstinate or hard-headed, whereas when I speak to those particular learners and to their parents, I prefer words like determined. Mm. No, actually, they have a vision. They have a place they're running towards. We, we might have some feelings about the place they're running towards, but they will not allow anything to get in their way. And that's a really powerful attribute mm. if channeled in the right place. And that's the conversation to be had. How are we channeling this particular attribute, this particular quality, rather than how are we quelling it, which a word like obstinate or stubborn implies? Yeah. We need to get rid of it as opposed to maybe redirect it. Well, it's deficit theorizing, isn't it? I'd um, come back to one of my foundational philosophies in teaching these days through experience, really, is that I look at the students in front of me and every choice I make in relation to them is something that I hope to be doing in their best interest. But the person who I feel accountable to isn't just the person in the room in that moment. It's also them when they're 30. I imagine 
encountering them on the street and I want to be able to look them in the eye and I want to be able to look them in the eye and go, I made the right decision for you at that time, even if you didn't understand it at that time, because I'm sometimes informed about things that you're not. So I don't just need to please you in this moment. I need to do the right thing by you. And that's quite an interesting dynamic that I think I hold within myself as a teacher sometimes. Paul Willis has this interesting theory in and around the educational exchange with the idea being something like our learners have things they'd like to be doing. And the thing they'd like to be doing isn't actually being in the classroom. If they give up the thing they'd like to be doing, what we give them in return is a qualification. And what they get in return for that is a good job in quotation marks. And what they get in return is more income. What they get in return is a, a better life. And so that's sort of one of the fun we build our whole institutions of education upon is that you give up what you really want to be doing, come into the classroom instead, which hopefully we can try and bring them as close together as possible. But ultimately, there's far more things a learner would like to be doing than being even in the best possible classroom. At least that'll be true for most of our learners most of the time, I'd, I'd feel confident saying. Um, and in return, they sort of offer all of these things. And so I unpack that with a lot of our learners once they get to like year 11 and we can sort of have some more serious conversations that we're playing a bit of a trade-off right now. I see that, but I don't agree. I, I actually do think that being in the classroom is the thing they want the most to do because they hold such hopes for themselves. It's just a complex thing they're holding themselves to that they don't always fully apprehend. I think it might come from my background teaching aerobics where people literally had to choose to come into the room. <laughs> so I, I, I concentrate on that. But what I would say is that the injunction that I place upon myself is to insist on ensuring that whatever I'm doing makes the classroom the best place for them to be, well, given the range of choices they might otherwise have. Treat their being in the classroom as if it were a choice, even though they're not necessarily choosing it. And even though what you're saying might be true and I might be wrong, I think that attitude changes things a lot. Yeah, and I think speaking personally, which is where some of this philosophy, this philosophy is underpinned by, there are certainly many classrooms I would much rather have avoided and I'd rather have done painful things than to have sat within those classrooms and that actually they, they weren't spaces I wanted to be in, and they weren't spaces that were good for me, and they were spaces that were on net more harmful than they were contributing to my life in any meaningful way. Yes. There were probably years of education I could skip, and I would be, I would have gotten to the place I am now faster than, than having moved through that space. And I'm going to philosophically say, totally understand that, and I have such a parallel experience. You know, my secondary school life was a living hell too. But the way that I now configure that is that I was right there. They were all wrong. <laughs> I was in I was in the place I needed to be, but they were getting it wrong all around me. And that's um and that and that's just privileging education as being the most life-giving thing and that you can experience as a young person but that's so often we just get it so wrong that it turns into a torture is there anything you want to say anything you'd like to add or offer to the teachers who are listening and everyone else no i think it's all in there somewhere and maybe sometimes in more poetic forms and than in other places but it is what it is what's been said what's been said eh? so i'll stand by it You've been listening to Is This For Credits, the podcast of the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. Check out what else we're up to by going to our website, nzate.org.nz.